Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Years ago, researchers stumbled across something that stumped them. These weird configurations of stones, these red and white stones that were kind of in concentric ovals in the ground. And like many archaeologists do, they thought these must be religious, they must be talismans. Dorsa Amir is an evolutionary anthropologist and postdoctoral researcher at Boston College. And she says, it was hard to imagine what the stones could have symbolized, and they were so impressively arranged, something associated with religion seemed to make sense. That was over a century ago in Greenland. The stones had been left by the Thule people, the ancestors of the Inuit, and for decades, the mystery remained. And it wasn't until relatively recently, until in the last decade or so, that we've started to reanalyze what those structures were and link it with ethnographic data from those populations. And we've realized that they're actually children's playhouses. They are small structures that mimic the adult houses. And the red and white stones, we think, represent blubber and seal meat, uh, just like in the adult houses. Amir says the confusion that surrounded the playhouses is emblematic of what we tend to do, which is discount kids and the power of what they dream up. And I think in general, people underestimate what children are doing and why their behavior is important. They think play is trivial, right? It's a luxury. It's something you engage in when you have time. And I don't think they realize just how important play is to becoming an adult in your culture. But that training ground for adulthood, Amir says, is withering. She argues, provocatively, that what we have effectively managed to do is slash and burn core features of childhood, the very roots of what makes us human. Now, to be fair, if play is disappearing from modern society, there will be some who will be sorry to see it go. In 2018, the American Academy of Pediatrics said that play promotes nurturing relationships, improves executive functioning skills, and enhances life course trajectories, which is kind of shocking for an activity that we generally pay very little attention to. Amir, who studies children around the world, spends a lot of time with communities that have not industrialized. They fish, they often gather food, and they treat their kids completely differently. So I think some of the features that stand out to me, at least from observing children in these cultures, is largely independence, is unstructured play that's often happening away from adult supervision, and mixed-age playgroups. And I think it's easy to say, well, lots of things have changed quickly and we've kind of updated and now we're living in this new world. But I think it's also important to recognize that we are a result of our evolutionary history and we spent 99% of our time on this planet expecting these structures in the world. And even before this, so you see play, you see mixed-age playgroups, you see all these same things in our primate cousins as well. So this is really an ancient social structure and an ancient way, I think, of learning about the world. And I think you are starting to see perhaps some of the consequences of getting rid of those structures and changing childhood so quickly in our industrialized countries. When you say the consequences, what kind of consequences are you thinking yeah, about? Yeah, so we know through a lot of evidence that children learn really well when they are observing other peers that are older than them and that they're teaching kids that are younger than them, for instance. But our entire educational system is built around direct adult teaching. And, you know, you really think like, okay, so 
children are going into classes. They're getting this form of teaching and instruction that's very novel, actually. And they're expected to attend to it eight hours a day, basically, for years and years and years of their development. And it's possible that some of the things that we're seeing, like attention deficit disorder or hyperactivity, these things might be a mismatch between the way in which we have evolved to learn and the way in which our cultures expect children to learn now. I'm not saying that explains it entirely, but it might be one of the factors that's contributing to it. So let's talk about a couple of those things. Um, Mixed age groups, as you say, like now, you know, kids are in fifth grade and pretty much everybody's 10. Maybe a few kids have turned 11. Maybe a couple kids haven't turned 10 yet. But basically, 10-year-olds are with 10-year-olds and 11-year-olds are with 11-year-olds and on it goes. What is the downside to that? Yeah. So it turns out that one of the ways that children learn really well is through learning from kids that are a little bit older and wiser and slightly better at things than them. And they are able to better copy someone who's slightly better than them than someone who's an expert, mm. right? So imagine you want to learn tennis. Playing against Roger Federer is not going to be that instructive, right? You're not really even going to be able to rally. But playing with someone who's a little bit better than you is actually kind of within your grasp. And so there's a lot of evidence to suggest that that form of learning is really beneficial, not just for hard skills like, let's say, math, but also for social skills. So kids are learning about what it's like to be a member of their community, how to maintain friendships, how to resolve conflicts from kids that are older than them a lot of the time. And especially in these communities that I work in, like the Shuar, who are an indigenous population in the Amazon, the majority of care is actually coming from older siblings and older members of the community. And it is just as important, I think, for children's development as adult supervision and adult input in many ways. And it's something that I think kids here are missing out on. Can you give me an example of something that you've seen with the Shuar people, something that is unlikely you'd see here? Yeah, so I think the more striking image is probably the fact that a lot of the children have small machetes or small knives. And from very early on, they are practicing the movements that their parents engage in. So the Shuar people use machetes to cut down weeds in their yard. They use it to open fruits. And you can see kids from a very young age, basically as early as two or three years old, with their small knives practicing these motions. And their parents aren't worried. Oh, no, they give them the knives, right? Okay. And, and, you know, I think in general, like, of course, there are some accidents, but but in general, children do reach some mastery of it earlier, and they do end up being just as masterful uh, as their parents when they're adults. It's interesting. I remember talking to Jared Diamond years ago, who has done his work in Pacific Islands, and I'm, I remember him saying exactly the same thing, like that people did not worry that much about the kinds of things we'd worry about, fire and knives being close to kids, like we would be terrified of that, and we baby-proof our homes and the whole bit. But he just said that's just not what he saw. People were did not seem concerned. Totally. And it's not that they're, you know, they're attentive parents. They care about their children. They take care of them. They love them just as much as we do. And I think, actually, if you look at our own culture, you don't have to go back that far in time to find those same patterns in our culture. So, there are lots of people that I've talked to who are older and can describe a childhood that actually sounds a lot closer to what I'm describing among the Shuar. So it's really just a few generations ago, really, that we started to be hyper-attentive, I think, to parenting. 
And I, I first read this in the psychologist Alison Gopnik's book, but the verb parenting didn't even come about until the 1950s or 60s, huh. right? So it was always a noun. You were a parent. But then suddenly it became an active verb that you had to do. You had to parent. Interesting. Uh, and I think that really coincides with our cultural kind of shift in what we think the role of parents are. And I do think, you know, at least in my experience, Children are very resilient. They can be very responsible. They want independence. They want that responsibility. And I think they are able to thrive in an environment in which they're given that. And I don't exactly know what's holding us back, you know, from giving them that. Let's also talk about another contrast you see uh, between industrialized societies and maybe not, which is the gap in the amount of time kids play. Can you just talk a little bit about that and what you see? Yeah, absolutely. So play is a really foundational part of human development. As I was mentioning before, it's not trivial. It's not just like, okay, there's some time to kill. Let them just play until we go do this important thing. Play has evolved. Play serves a function. It allows kids to practice the skills that are going to be important to them as adults in low-cost ways. And, it, you know, they enjoy it. They get, you know, this burst of dopamine, right? And I think the reason that they enjoy it is because they're starting to become more familiar with these practices that are important. And I think because we've kind of shifted our understanding of what play is from something that's foundational to something that's kind of trivial— we are undervaluing its role in human development. And we know, for instance, that you know, letting kids explore things on their own allows them to form new connections and allows them to understand a process in a different way and maybe even improve upon it, right? And we're so focused on this active instruction that says, this is how you do this, right? Just copy me, that we're actually taking away children's abilities to innovate and really understand in their own way through hands-on experience and play what these processes are actually like. You talked about a soccer game, I think it was in Ecuador, that you were kind of a part of, but talk about the adults are playing soccer and go from there. Yeah, I love this because it's actually a, a really nice analogy to the Thule playhouses that we started out with, right? So the Schweier really liked to play soccer, and so the adults had organized a soccer game between two of the communities, and right alongside it, I noticed some kids setting up their own soccer game. And, uh, and nobody, I assume nobody told them to. No, no. They were just like imitating exactly. what they were saying. Okay. Exactly. And uh, they called me over and I got really excited because I was like, oh, they want me to play with them. This is so fun. And I started to come into the field and one of the kids was like, no, 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 no. We want you to keep score. Can you please stand on the sideline and serve this function so that all of us can play? And so I kept score for them. And it's actually very interesting because I've done that with kids in America before. And they often come and protest, you know, rulings to me if I call a foul or whatever. And what I noticed was that I was playing a very minimal role. They didn't want my opinion on what was a foul. <laughs> they didn't want me to judge. They literally wanted me to keep score with like a stick in the mud. And so I, that was also very interesting to see that they were resolving a lot of these disputes themselves and didn't want or need my input. But they also kind of knew that they needed somebody to serve that function, and they were probably creatively thinking, who around here is not occupied? Who could we, you know, consign to this exactly. task? Yeah, right? it's the most expendable. Right. So let's contrast that with play in the U.S. I remember uh, reading this article years ago by Daniel Elkind, who's a scholar of child development, and he talked about there was this Japanese photographer and the Japanese photographer's goal starting in the 1970s was to document play on the streets of Tokyo. You just like go around and take pictures of like how kids play. In the mid 90s, he gave up this 
two-decade-long project because he kids weren't playing anymore. He couldn't find kids on the streets of Tokyo, so there's nobody to really take a picture of. And I feel like in some way that reflects the change in terms of how much kids just go outside and do different things. And I wonder what you see in terms of play here in the U.S. Yeah, absolutely. So everything I think that we have observed matches what you're describing. So kids are spending less time outside than they did a few generations ago. There is definitely less independence in what they decide to do, you know, forming their own playdates or taking their bike and going somewhere else. That's definitely becoming less and less common. But what's interesting is, and this is an argument that uh, the psychologist Peter Gray has made, is that they have taken that social energy and transferred it to the online world. And so they're still able to connect with each other and interact with each other in fun ways and play, but now it's happening from within homes instead of going outside. They've kind of found a new ecology with which they can do that. And is there a downside to that? Are there upsides to that? I mean, what do you see? And like, yeah. so they're using these sort of ancient skills, but in a new way, good, bad? Yeah, that's right. I think it's a mixed bag. So I definitely think it's, I, I find it actually rather wonderful that they found this new place that they can still practice these things that have been so important in development. But of course, we know that going outside, having in-person interactions, all of these things are also features of our development. And so it's possible that some of the downsides involve having less practice with that. And it's a little bit hard, I think, to transfer skills. For example, communication via texting versus in person, those are different skills. And so you might be underdeveloping one of those skills versus the other. But I've actually really changed my mind on this based on Dr. Gray's argument. And I do think it's more beneficial than people have previously thought. Hmm. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Dorsa Amir. She's an evolutionary anthropologist. She's at Boston College. Um, when you come back from spending months in Ecuador and then you come back to America, which is where you live most of the time, what this is kind of the converse, but what surprises you here? Like when you make that transition back to, you know, sort of work in the lab. Yeah, yeah. Well, personally, I experienced quite a lot of reverse culture shock. So usually in the communities that we're visiting, these are remote communities in the Amazon. They have things like electricity, some of them, but there's no running water. It's we're in tents and that we're out of contact. And one of the things that I think is most difficult for me to do when I reintegrate back into American culture is really enter back into the telecommunications world. It's very overwhelming, actually, the, the number of requests for your time and attention and the frequency of that, the number of emails, texts, phone calls. And that always kind of surprises me when I come back, like, whew, I have to prepare myself for, you know, being available mm -hmm. all the time in a way that I wasn't before. But I do think in terms of child development, this is, again, one of the things that's very interesting to me. And one of the reasons I love doing fieldwork is because the contrast between these two cultures is so stark, and I experience it personally. And I have noticed, for instance, that when we ask for parental consent in Ecuador, they're like, yeah, yeah, of course, like, ask the kid. It's, you know, they get to decide what they want to do. Like if you're doing an experiment yeah, or yeah. something and you need the parent to sign off on it. Exactly. Okay. And so usually I would say the modal response is like, sure, like, Make sure to ask them because they get to decide ultimately what they want to do. And you kind of get the reverse pattern here, which is very interesting. And I love that parents are engaged, you know, and they're asking questions. But I do notice that there is definitely a difference in where the decision making is coming from. And I don't think it's good or bad. I think it's just different. 
So if things have changed so much um, in the last few hundred years, maybe even in the last generation or two, when you think about technology, and we talked before about this idea of have we sort of slashed and burned the core features of childhood, what effect does it have on our society to change childhood so quickly and in such a radical way where you know, we're wired for something that's been going on for a long, long time, hundreds of thousands of years, and then maybe that's kind of not matching up with what we experience. Yeah, definitely. So what you're describing is a a phenomenon called evolutionary mismatch, where the environment that you have evolved in has suddenly changed very quickly, and the genes and the adaptations that you have at that level aren't able to really keep up. I think it's such a difficult question, actually. And one of the reasons is that it's not like the environment has changed and has stopped changing. It is actually continuing to change at a very, very rapid pace. And so it's really difficult, I think, to nail down what those consequences are because it's just shifting every day. There are some leads. There are some things potentially, you know. So like I was mentioning, attention disorders, in general, things like the ability to resolve social conflicts, emotional regulation, management, types of things that I think we see much more frequently in industrialized societies. But those are all happening at a behavioral level. I think there's also a lot of very interesting things going on at the physiological level. So we have evolved for an environment that has less food access than we have now, that expects us to burn a lot of calories when we're going out foraging, taking care of children, that expects women to have high fertility rates. And I think a lot of those consequences are not just behavioral, but biological as well, these changes that we're seeing. So if you're a parent or if you're a grandparent or you're a teacher and in some way you, you know, are coming into contact with children or in charge of children, are there things you would say like, you know, try to do this a little bit more or, you know, what what would your advice be? Yeah, definitely. So first I just want to say I don't think it's all bad, right? There are lots of good things that have happened as a result of industrialization. We live in a much safer world. We live in a healthier world. But yes, I think there are some things that we could do to potentially bring back some of these features. And they can be really simple, right? So giving children more unstructured playtime. Instead of saying, you know, here's an activity I'm giving you to do over the next hour. Let me do it with you or you can do it by yourself. Just say, you know, you have a couple hours to yourself. Do whatever you want and let them explore their interests. Let them, you know, build up that skill set in the way that's self-directed. Similarly, I think... In encouraging mixed-age playdates is really important, encouraging connections to family members who are a little bit older, to friends that are a little bit younger, can be really beneficial. And I'm sure if you think back to your own childhood, you can think of these, you know, older sisters or older friends who are role models for you, and you probably were a model yourself for younger kids in your family. And I think setting up the environment where you can foster those connections is actually very powerful. It's interesting that you talked about how parenting is this kind of relatively new word. I've talked to a number of people who've talked about the intense pressures on parents, um, often mothers but not always, to really, you know, shepherd their kids and make sure they're doing whatever extracurricular things are most advantageous and not falling behind. And and, and it's almost become, you know, like it's like a part-time job on, on top of whatever else you're doing. Um, but, the, but the kind of activeness versus versus – 
of course, being a caring mother or father, but saying, yeah, just go off and play soccer with kids. Those are two completely different situations. Yeah, exactly. And this is kind of what I'm hoping I can shed some insight into, right? That even though we want to be active parents, being literally active and involved is not actually always the best strategy, right? And I do think, yes, there's a huge amount of pressure. And I think it's because of our our conception of what the role of a parent really is and how it's changed. So I'll speak again of Alison Gopnik, who's a developmental psychologist, and she wrote a book called The Gardener and the Carpenter. And it's about these kind of dual perspectives of what caretaking actually is, right? So there is this kind of model of parenting where you think, you know, you're a carpenter, you're, you're building the perfect chair and it needs to match these dimensions. But she argues that it's a lot more like cultivating a garden, right? You give them good soil, you make sure things are pruned, you give them sunlight, and you kind of nurture their growth. But they're not going to be exactly the thing that you picture that they're going to be. And I think that that's a much more valid model of the role of parenting in evolutionary history. And I hope it's a little bit liberating, right? And actually, the optimal thing to do might be to step back a little and and relieve some of the pressure on yourself and your children. Dorsa Amir is an evolutionary anthropologist. She's a postdoctoral researcher at Boston College. Dorsa, thanks so much. This is wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. And on our website, we've got links to Dorsa's Washington Post op-ed about how childhood has changed, as well as more from researchers who have studied the science, and in some cases, the decline of play. That's at innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Songer, associate producer Sarah Leeson, and engineer David Goodman. We also had production help from Eleanor Ho. And a big welcome to our new listeners on KUER in Salt Lake City. We are thrilled to have you with us. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.